You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the locals' weekly podcast looking at what's happening in Sweden this week. We're recording this episode on Thursday the 15th of December and with Christmas fast approaching, we're welcoming a guest to the studio today, Jonas Engman from Nordiska Museet, the Nordic Museum, who will give us the lowdown on seasonal Swedish traditions. We'll also listen to an interview with the French ambassador and we'll cover some of this week's main talking points, including migration agency waiting times, rising prices, and why the Sweden Democrats blocked a Lucia Day procession. I'm Paul Amani, and I'm joined here in Stockholm by James Savage and Jonas Engman, and in Malmö by Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. How are you all? Very well. Fine, thanks. Very well, thank you. Good, Cold. good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's like minus 13 here today. I think we're on our way in. Yeah. Okay, we're in Christ. plus, we're one plus degree. So actually, maybe not that cold. <laughs> so feeble. <laughs> I'm literally wrapped in a blanket right now. <laughs> uh, Jonas, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you here. Could you please tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, yes, I'm Jonas Engman and I'm a curator, ethnologist, folklife researcher at the Nordiska Museet in Stockholm. I'm specialized in, in rituals, everyday life rituals and holidays throughout the year and the holidays or rituals of of the life cycle as well. What an interesting subject. Mm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> what are you all doing? Are you staying in Sweden for Christmas? Yes. Yes, I, yeah, I am at home. At home. As usual. <laughs> <laughs> How about the rest of you? We're going to have um we're going to have my family over in our new apartment and we're going to host Christmas for the first time. Ooh. So we're doing Swedish Christmas on the 24th and then English Christmas or British Christmas on the 20 Fifth. So Ooh. it's going to be very busy and lots of food. Uh, <laughs> we will be absolutely stuffed by the 26th, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm spending my Christmas in Sweden and doing it Swedish style. So that will be um, that will be fun. But then, fantastic Swedish word, melandagana. Don't have a proper word for it in English. But the days between Christmas and New Year, I'm going to England. And then I'll probably do it all again, English style. Maybe. I don't know. My mother-in-law's got this little farmhouse in a place called Lovstebro, which is this old, beautiful old like a mining oh, town north of uh, Uppsala. So we're going to go there and it's going to be beautiful and snowy. And then we're going to go to England, hopefully, after Christmas for New Year. But the, it seems like it's a travel nightmare. <laughs> There's going to be strikes everywhere. <laughs> yeah. What is the Christmas travel situation looking like, Richard? You've been covering this a little bit. It's, it's actually better than it was. The Swedish train operator, Sjeer, came out last week and said they're really worried there's going to be train chaos because of this new control system that the trans Swedish Transport Administration is bringing in. But it, it started on Sunday and it seems to be all right. doesn't seem like there's been any catastrophe. So that means that one of the Great. big worries is gone. And then the other thing this year is that it's because school breaks up on the 22nd, 
everyone has to travel on the 23rd. So it could be more... Normally, you get a couple of days. So it, every, all the sort of Christmas travel is concentrated in one day. So the, the roads might be quite busier than usual. If you're traveling to the UK, like I am, you should be aware that there's airport strikes from the 23rd right through Christmas to the 26th in all the major oh. airports. It's two kinds of airport strikes. It's ground handlers at Heathrow and it is passport control. Do we know if that's going to affect people who are just try, uh, passing but through the UK? If you're... I, the passport control shouldn't affect people who are just passing through if they're not planning to go through immigration. But it, it might, it will affect them to an extent because they are planning on cancelling one third of all flights into the UK in order to cope with the okay. lack of passport control people. So yes, it will affect some people who are just transiting through the UK. We don't know how flights to Sweden are affected yet, but we'll find out. Okay, we'll update on the site when we find out more. Okay, let's get to some of this week's uh, news stories. Becky, you wrote about a report from the parliamentary ombudsman criticising the Migration Agency for long processing times, which a lot of listeners are all too familiar with. And we'll put a link to our articles on this topic in the notes. But I'm just wondering, what's the upshot of all this? Is it going to force any kind of change from the Migration Agency? Um, I mean, it's hard to say, really. Realistically, probably not. Uh, This isn't the first time the Parliamentary Ombudsman has criticised the Migration Agency for long processing times. I mean, as recently as January 2021, Parliamentary Ombudsman Per Lennebrandt conducted or he concluded a similar investigation raising similar Mm. issues. And I mean, the Ombudsman, he doesn't have power to change the law or like allocate new resources to the Migration Agency to fix this issue. And Lennebrandt also said himself that he believes it could take years for the issues to be resolved. So I would say kind of the best case scenario is that it puts a bit more pressure on the government to allocate more resources to the Migration Agency. But I would say realistically, not much is going to change. Mm. One other interesting thing we did notice, though, when we looked through the official documents was that the Migration Agency believe that they will hit their target of providing an answer to citizenship applications in six months or less at some point next year. So at some point in 2023. So it would be really interesting if that actually happens, if people applying for citizenship actually get a response within six months next year, because current waiting times can be as high as three years plus. So that, that's something that we, we're going to be quite interested to keep an eye on. Thanks for that, Becky. So one of the most read articles on The Local this week is our columnist David Crouch's piece on the perilous state of the property market. He writes that after 17 years of dizzying growth, house prices are now falling like a stone. And that obviously has lots of implications for the economy as a whole. And homeowners are starting to struggle under the weight of rising interest rates. And I'd advise listeners to read David's article, which is in the show notes for a more detailed view of the property situation. But just in general, Richard, for people worried about the cost of living, is Sweden getting to grips with rising prices now? No, I mean, not really. The Riksbank's been putting up interest rates over this year, but inflation is still increasing. So the latest figures that were out this week showed that prices are continuing to rise with consumer price inflation of 11.5% in November. Some economists say this is better than was expected, given the increase in energy prices. In some ways, it's in a better position than a lot of countries in Europe, because the reason that the government has broken so many promises, or one of the reasons, is that they are putting controlling inflation first. They're not following through on some of the promises they made that would have been inflationary, which is positive if inflation is your priority. And and, and the other thing is that in Sweden, unlike most countries, unions generally accept that 
in times of inflation, they might be, need to accept real wage cuts to prevent a wage price spiral. And unions in a lot of other countries are not nearly that understanding. On the other hand, Sweden has a lot of debt, which puts limits how much the central bank can raise rates because of the, what's happened to the housing market. As David Crouch's article makes clear, if you whacked up rates too much in Sweden, you'd just cause a, an absolute an economic crisis. The central bank has a balancing act, but there is the advantage that the unions are going to keep salary increases under control. Great. Yeah. And we've got some articles on the site about inflation, if anyone wants to, to read more on that. Anyone who listened to the podcast last week might remember that our guest Anna Truberi expressed concern about the far-right Sweden Democrats meddling in the cultural sphere. And this week we had two examples of exactly that happening. In Trelleborg, a library cancelled a planned storytime event featuring two drag queens after a local Sweden Democrat politician complained, although this decision was overturned yesterday on, on Wednesday. And in Bolnes, the Sweden Democrat regional chairman put a stop to a local college's planned Lucia parade when he found out that the person the college had chosen as Lucia identified as non-binary. James, can you put this in context for us? Why are the Sweden Democrats preoccupied with issues surrounding gender identity? And should we be worried when they intervene like this? Well, if you look at the Sweden Democrats, their brand of right-wing populism is very focused on culture and, you know, traditional culture and Swedish culture. And that's meant that they've traditionally been a, quite sceptical towards gender politics and LGBT rights. In some respects, they've moved quite a lot in recent years. They're no longer in favour of a ban on adoption by same-sex couples. But some of these more sort of woke issues, for want of a better term, they're very much on the, on the cultural right of that. You know, they've opposed the use of rainbow flags on public buildings and buses. They stay away from pride parades, which they say have become over-sexualised. Uh, interestingly, they say that they would um, be open to attending pride parades in countries that have more repressive laws than Sweden. And according to RFSU, which is an organisation that promotes sex education, SD has voted in councils around the country to withdraw support for pride festivals, for LGBTQ organisations and so on. In the case of the drag queens, what the local head of the Sweden Democrats said was that um, the characters in question weren't suitable for children. Now, the characters in question were called Lady Busty and, uh, to give her her full name, Miss Shameless Wine Whore. Um, and they decided that these two um, were were not the, right, the right kind of drag queen to be presented to children, or that was at least the explanation that Magnus Isgren, who was the SD chairman in Trelleborg, gave. Um, and he said that he'd have been okay with Babsan, who was an old-school Swedish drag queen, a bit more, a bit, a bit more uh, wholesome in his view. And they also claimed that they never intended to ban drag queen story time as such. They say that they merely were asked their opinion by <coughs> officials and gave it. So there, are, there is slight differences here, but obviously this has raised the question of RSD wanting to use their power politically to, to get involved in making decisions that should be left up to um, non-political officials. And you know, that has been a concern. And in the question of the regional council in Yevlebori, that was very much the decision of the Sweden Democrat chairman, Matthias Eriksson Falk, who said that he didn't want this Lucia procession to 
appear in the council chamber because it, in his view, wasn't traditional. The Lucia who was chosen was did not identify as a woman. I think they identified as non-binary. With SD being so interested in, in cultural questions, in the questions of what's traditional and what's not, and with them having political power, they are coming up against this barrier now. What is a political decision? What is a what is what is in politicians' sphere and what is in the in the in the sphere of ordinary officials and people who are who are not political. So um, they are they are now finding themselves accused of politicizing things that in many other people's view should not be politicized. Do you have any view on this, uh, Jonas, how the Sweden Democrats are politicizing traditions like this? From an academic point of view, it to me it illustrates that uh, rituals of all kinds, holidays and so on, they are actually often being contested in, in society and we can see that historically there has been even Santa Claus and Christmas celebrations in Britain for instance in the, the 15th, 16th century were challenged and they were challenging the king I believe. So this is another illustration of that and they also illustrate that rituals and holidays are they are dealing with paradigmatic views in society. That is gender, for instance, mm. sexuality, yeah. uh, men and women, deeply felt views on, on how society should be built and the structure of society, which this to me is a very good example of. Then, uh, And I also think that's my more personal view that politicians shouldn't mess or interfere with everyday life hmm. that's actually what they're doing yeah uh, so to me it's uh, it's a kind of a way of uh, using the political power in, in the wrong way hmm. that's exactly what our guest anna trube last week she talked about how politicians are supposed to stay at arm's length from everyday life and the cultural sphere and she used the metaphor of them amputating that arm and that's the the risk that she saw with them you're getting involved like this. But it, it, must, it must be difficult for politicians of all kinds to sort of draw that line about where, because as a politician, you, you are involved in setting the framework for the rules and for, and for, how, we, for how we conduct all, all, all aspects of, of, of life in a country. And yes, it's a, it's a tricky balance between the pol- political uh, implications of having political views and being politicians and everyday life. But I think that we had a, f- a couple of years ago, our former prime minister, Stefan Löfven, said that in Sweden, we shake hands as yeah. a token of of uh, honor and and uh, so and uh, to me it was the same thing he was messing with our everyday life maybe we do sometimes we shake hands and that's uh, and we show honor and, and we honor our agreement by shaking hands but everybody doesn't do that which is tricky because you you have the right not to shake hands yeah. so what what happened then uh, nobody noticed this but I, th- I i had a lot of thought about it that it, it, it was wrong of him to try to describe Swedishness by that we are honourable people that shake hands. I mean, that exact example of shaking hands was used in Denmark. A requirement for getting Danish citizenship was having to shake hands of the mayor right. who, who was giving you your citizenship. So if, if you are a woman who comes from a culture where you're not allowed to shake hands with a man, that automatically means that you can't get Danish citizenship unless you go against your culture. Mm. So I mean, exactly. that's another example of it being politicised. But I suppose there's a difference, isn't there, between sort of making rules, forcing people to shake hands in order to get a particular right and politicians acting in a sort of a, as a sort of a norm, norm setters. You know, I mean, Stefan Levian 
wasn't forcing anyone to shake hands, right? He was just saying, this is my view as, as a national leader that this is what we do. Is, well, is, that, is, that, is that legitimate for I politicians? I think he's, he's kind of saying, if you're saying Swedes shake hands, you can also argue that he's saying people that don't shake hands aren't as Swedish as people who do. Exactly. So it's kind of it's exclusionary in one way. It's trying to define what Swedishness is mm. and is, is not, which is truly problematic from from every kind of perspective, whether it's academic or it's uh, political. It's very, very problematic. It's almost a philosophical question of what leadership is about, though, isn't it? Do you have a role beyond your legislation or are you, are you merely there as, a, as someone to legislate? Isn't that why we have the king? <laughs> like that's why you have a king and then you have a prime minister one of them does the laws and one of them does the the standing up being hey i'm swedish kind of thing <laughs> it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you've been listening over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we're interviewing ambassadors to find out more about Sweden's relationship with other countries. And this week I sat down for a chat with the French ambassador, Etienne de Gonville. He's 51, he told me. He's been a diplomat for 20 years with previous overseas postings in Iran, the US and Vietnam. But Sweden is his first posting as an ambassador and his first in Europe. And he's been here for just over two years. Let's listen to what he had to say. I was born in Paris, uh, although my family has uh, nowadays roots in Brittany. And originally it's a family from Normandy, so uh, there is a high probability that my ancestors actually came from Scandinavia. Or at least it's the... uh, it's like we uh, like to think in the family. Can you tell us a little bit about the French community in Sweden? I mean, how many French people are there here? Well, the, uh, we, we assess that the, uh, the French community in Sweden uh, numbers about 10,000 people, uh, two-thirds of which are located in Stockholm or, or the Stockholm region. Um, it's a very dynamic uh, and well-integrated community. Uh, we, we do not uh, uh, keep statistics on what uh, French people do in Sweden, but uh, from anecdotal evidence, you can, uh, you can say that they are present in every part of uh, the Swedish society, from uh, restaurants, of course, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, the highest uh, innovative sectors, 
like uh, gaming in uh, Malmö or uh, building batteries in uh, Relefteo or studying in the uh, various uh, Swedish universities. Our relations uh, with Sweden are growing. The number of people in the French community in Sweden is, uh, is also growing. There is um, a lot of mutual attraction uh, at the moment between France and Sweden and uh, this is good. <laughs> uh, this is good for both our countries. This is good for Europe as well. We are developing our partnership uh, at the moment on the basis of the assumption that there is a, a, a certain amount of mutual ignorance between Sweden and France and that much more needs to be done to, to develop our relations and to exploit the best of both countries. If we can move on to um, sort of trade, what are trade relations like between France and Sweden? Well, if we, if we enlarge the scope a little bit uh, to uh, economic relations between uh, uh, Sweden and France in general, it's a growing and, and very dynamic uh, relation. If you take uh, investments, for instance, uh, Swedish investments in France account for about 100,000 jobs uh, in, in France, and French investments in Sweden Uh, it's roughly 75,000 jobs uh, in the country. In terms of goods and services, it's also a, a growing relationship, even though we are, for each other, uh, a middle-sized partner. Uh, Sudan is about the, the 10th partner in Europe, France, uh, in terms of uh, commercial exchange. In terms of market share, which is often a good indicator, France has a 4% market share. So it's better than uh, what France does globally. But of course, if you compare us to Germany, Germany is 18%. So it shows that there is a huge potential in, uh, in the relationship and we are definitely working on it. We are working nowadays within the framework of a bilateral partnership uh, for innovation and green solution to uh, fully exploit the, the potential that exists between uh, France and Sweden. Uh, that partnership was signed between President Macron and then Prime Minister Leuven in 2017. And it gives a direction to our administrations, our agencies, our companies, the indication that we need to do more together for the benefit of both our countries, but also to, to build a stronger Europe. On a more personal note, what would you say is the one thing you found most surprising after moving to Sweden? I guess the most surprising thing and also the most impressive thing when you are in Sweden is the cohesion of the Swedish society. It's a huge strength uh, for, for Sweden. It has served uh, the country well over time. And we can see crisis after crisis, political events after political events, how important it is for the resilience of the society. It is, of course, challenged, but, but it seems that this cohesion uh, is, is resisting. Uh, a saying uh, from uh, Lenin, I don't know if it is true or not, but it is attributed to Lenin, who said that if uh, there was a coup in, in Sweden and a revolution, uh, the first act of the revolutionary government would be to invite to dinner the former members of the bourgeoisie government. And uh, I, think, I think that there's a lot of truth in that, and that sums it up. And what would you say is the best thing about living in Sweden? Well, there are many good things, but uh, definitely the proximity to nature is, uh, for those who like that, uh, is, is a huge attraction to the country. That was the French ambassador Etienne de Gonville. And if you're interested in finding out more about Franco-Swedish relations, we'll write up a longer version of the interview, which you'll be able to find on the local.se early next week. 
This show is made possible by members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce independent journalism and we'd like to thank everybody who supports us through membership. If you're not yet a member, you can check out our introductory offer for Sweden in Focus listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. Now, Christmas is almost here, and for a lot of us, that means getting to grips with unfamiliar Yuletide traditions involving goats, gnomes, and a Donald Duck TV special. Uh, We put out a message on social media this week asking readers and listeners to submit questions for Jonas, and we're hoping you can help give us some answers. Are you you ready for the questions? Yes, I am. I hope I can (laughs) answer them. Why does Sweden celebrate on Christmas Eve? Well, that's a tricky, really complicated complicated answer, I'm afraid, but I'll try to make it simple. In pre-Christian time, that is 1,200 years ago or so, we counted the hours of the day in a different way. So it actually didn't match the Christian way of structuring the 24-hour uh, the day. So it, it kind of was eight hours early, so to speak. Right. So that's, that's probably the cause why we always celebrate the day before you do in Britain, for instance, or in the in the in the Western world, so we celebrate what we call aftnar, afton, yeah, Eve. So the day would sort of start at sun sunset. Yes, exactly. And then we'll go to sunset the next day and yeah. then a new day would start yeah. so a little bit like is that a bit like in the Jewish calendar which is this, the Shabbat starts on the Friday night and then goes on to the Saturday maybe, right maybe. Uh, yeah that's super interesting it is and so is that the case then for is that why Sweden always celebrates on the eve of major holidays yes that's that's the, the reasonable um, explanation at least that's that's your view and you're sticking to it yeah <laughs> but, it's, but, but it's, the, it's the same on midsummer midsummer's eve is exactly. when you celebrate yeah. midsummer and it's the same on east poskafton easter the, the easter saturday is when you celebrate easter Morton's so afton so down here in skåne yeah yep. that's so interesting And here's a question that we got that I think a lot of people struggle to understand. Why does everyone, well, everyone, I say everyone, a lot of people, why do people sit down to watch the 1958 Walt Disney Christmas special (laughs) at 3 p.m. on Christmas Eve in Sweden? Because that's part of the definition of Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what you do, Paul. (laughs) That's what you do, and that's very typical of rituals. That's what you do in order to create a kind of ritual structure. I have to see Donald Duck every Christmas. Nothing is more Swedish. No, no, I, I believe not. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, I, feel, I always feel there's something very Swedish about doing something which is self-evidently kind of worthless and boring and monotonous, but doing it because everybody does it at the same time. It, it gives you a sort of sense of togetherness. We're all going to do this thing that is not obviously not that entertaining <laughs> as a sort of maybe it is entertaining i don't want to say anything yeah. about donald duck yeah but in my in my case i'm i'm the only one who does it because the rest of the family hates it i feel like you can call it research though <laughs> probably but it's like your but what's the actual definition of an upasitakvel uh or what's Let's leave that to you. Let's leave that to you. Yeah, it's a media event actually. But we, there is a tradition in in Sweden that we celebrate the, uh, the the day before. We call it sometimes. We have been called it in Lilla Julafton uh, Little. Christmas Eve, and, and we try we eat a little bit of the uh, of the ham and, and the Christmas food. So on the twenty third, dan för doppare dan. Yeah, 
the day before. Okay, now, now I think we need to explain this. Don Ferre Doppere Don. The day before so that's the, the day before day. the dipping day. Why is it the dipping day? Because we have this idea that people used to uh, eat bread and dip it in um, the, the, the juice of, of the, the, the boiled ham. Yeah. Which is kind quite terrible. My father <laughs> loved it. He said, "But it's, well, it's, I think it's, it's gammon, awful. so it's salted. <laughs> like it's just yes. like a salty Ooh. broth, really. Very salty." Okay, let's get back to the the reader questions. What time do people open presents on Christmas Eve? Never after Donald Duck. <laughs> I'd say early evening. I'd say four or five or six o'clock or something like that. Well, that kind of leads on to the next question: like, Why don't they open the presents in the morning after Santa Claus has come down the the chimney? And the actual question is. Uh, about the Tomte tradition, or as somebody put it, the different Santa Claus. Who is the Yule Tomte in Sweden, and where does this tradition come from? Yes, actually, it doesn't come through the chimney. No, uh, the, he, he comes into our homes. Actually, he he he, he comes into our private zone, which is uh, I, I'm I'm not sure if it's unique, but it's very typical for Sweden at least, and I believe uh, the Nordic countries throughout. And that's uh, the way the, the Swedish Santa Claus we say as folklorists uh, differ a little bit from or a lot from the Anglo-Saxon uh, Santa Claus because we call doesn't call him Santa Claus, we call him Tomte. Uh, which, which is like is, a gnome. A gnome, yes, but it's actually a kind of mixture because the gnomes were supernatural beings that were on the farm and, and sort of protected the farm from poverty and took responsibility for the animals in, in, uh, and saw that the, the, the people really take, took care of, of the animals. Uh, and if they didn't, they, they could get a slap from him. And then you know that, that the gnome was there protecting the animals. It's to this gnome that we put out... Uh, porridge uh, in in the evenings. It's porridge because that was what people ate. Mm. Yeah. Porridge, 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 porridge. No meat. Uh, so um, and this gnome uh, was uh, kind of mixed with the image of Santa Claus in the late 19th century. So it's kind of a mixture of of Santa Claus. And we since we're not Catholics, we we, we doesn't care about saints <laughs> so um, the Jultomte is became a kind of a figure mixed with Santa Claus a kind of northern European tradition surrounding mm. Santa Claus he can be rather uh, sometimes a little bit angry or frightening and you can see him he's actually coming into your homes how does he come into the home he knocks on the door or the father of the house always go out to buy a newspaper <laughs> that's magical <laughs> my father did it and we always wondered why does he need to buy a newspaper in, in the, on Christmas Eve you figured it out when you were 37 well we did <laughs> in the 30s in he's going 30. to find something else to buy now when the newspaper's on his phone yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. you have to snooze <laughs> take up smoking or something <laughs> <Sorry, else. laughs> I mean I find it amazing that my children uh, somehow suspend their disbelief I mean I don't know because uh, uh, their their uncle does an, a very t a terrifying tomte, and he comes mm. in, and they don't say that was Uncle uh, 
Uh, I forgot his name. They don't say that was He's Uncle Martin. You're so Ma- convinced that they you've forgotten say what that his was real Uncle name Martin. is. They, 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 they seriously believe at some level that it was Tomte, but I think at some level they must know. One, one aspect on, on the Yule Tomte is that uh, you can say almost all uh, ritual symbols, they, they are uh, paradoxical. It's like in the folktale. It's a paradox. It starts with a paradox. You have to learn how to... Um, your your mode of thinking on Christmas is that you you need to believe that this we are going into a paradox, mm-hmm. and the, this this mm-hmm. paradoxical symbol enters your home, and do funny things uh, that people don't usually do, mm-hmm. and that's okay mm-hmm. because you're you're within a, a kind of a ritual paradox. That's why it's so fascinating studying rituals because we create mm-hmm. these rooms or symbolic rooms where we can we can live and make paradoxes we can do things there that you can't do outside this paradox it's part of everyday mm. life actually it's a very po- important part of how we structure our society and our values about society i think my my daughter's going to be very confused as to why tomta comes on the 24th of December and then he comes again through the chimney on the 25th of December. <laughs> Something tells me she's not going to question that. It's just going to be... <laughs> that's another paradox, really. Can we talk about porridge quickly? Of course. Because we eat a lot of... Uh, at Christmas, we eat... <clears throat> a lot of porridge and you were talking about porridge being something that people always used to eat but we don't eat it the rest of the year now but is this is this somehow just sort of an echo of past eating habits that we kind of re Do you mean like the rice way, the rice porridge the, the rice porridge yeah, yeah. well the, when we had porridge it was was made on rye i believe mm. uh, not rice because rice was totally exclusive for the no- nobility mm. and the nobility let's say that they were one or two percent of the population mm. so the rice was people didn't know what it was until uh, yeah, well late 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century so so the, the, the rice has entered it as a kind of commodity that is luxury Mm. One principle when we go back and see the pre-industrial society in in Sweden, we we didn't have a means to have anything else than than porridge. We have a kind of an idea about the notion of of the pre-industrial times that we ate ham and we ate meat and everything. We didn't. Mm. We didn't at all. People didn't have meat. We maybe had a cow. And the cow was not for, of course, not for meat. That would be suicide for the family. It was in order to have um, manure, in order to make things grow. That's why. And that's why it was a catastrophe uh, when the cow died, because you couldn't have manure for your farming. So we've also had readers ask why goats are associated with Christmas in Sweden, with the giant straw goat in Jävla being the most obvious example. Mm-hmm. Well, another example of a very contested and, and um, um, ambivalent ritual symbol. It's interesting because if you go back to Germany on the 6th of December uh, and throughout Europe, I believe, there's uh, in the uh, in the 15th, 16th century and before that, you can see in, in kind of a mysterious uh, place in, the, in, in in towns, you can see St. Nicholas, Tomten, to be, so to speak, was a kind. He was a, uh, a saint that was very good, 
and, and uh, gave things to children. Mm. And he could came in on a stage with a goat holding the goat in a rope. And the goat it was a representation of, yes, the devil himself. So what, what that tells us is that this good saint that is Christianity, so to speak, had tamed the goat, that is, tamed the devil. Mm. So what, what this goat represents uh, culturally, uh, historically, is a, an idea of, of evil. So what we put under our Christmas tree or wherever we put this goat, we, we actually put a representation of the devil. And this is, uh, in, in ritual terms, ritual scholarship terms, this is a good illustration of uh, that how ambivalent symbols are. We don't remember this. We don't know it. I'm an ethnologist. I know it. But, but it's kind of loaded with kind of meaning, mm. ambivalence. Maybe the, uh, the answer lies in the question, why do we put it there? Well, because we put it there. And it's a kind of a, an anomaly. And that's why we think, oh, a goat. Then we start to interpret things in our everyday life. A goat, why, what does a goat do there? And we never ask ourselves, why does we bring in a tree into our apartment? Mm. That's kind of paradoxical That's too. totally normal to That's bring a, a tree. Totally yeah. normal. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the same thing. We, we actually, well, what does this tree do there? And then, well, of course, it's because it's Christmas. Mm. That's yeah, but, but, but still, why? <laughs> yes, but you have historically we can have some kind of explanation. But why do people do it today mm. is because it's it's impregnated with a kind of cultural meaning, mm. structural meaning. It makes it feel like Christmas. Exactly. Of course, one of the more recent traditions with the Swedish goat is the um, the one in Jävle. Yeah. That, that gets. Where, 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 the, where the whole of Sweden and much of the world is waiting on tenterhooks every year to see if it will burn. <laughs> yes. um, um, obviously, with the, with, with, if now we know that the, the, the goat is the devil, there's an extra level of symbolism. Of course it is. Yeah, yeah. And that's why they do it, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, this is a kind of a very ambivalent, provocative symbol and symbolism, uh, ritual symbolism, that you try to set fire to it every year and succeed many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of... Uh, paradoxical in itself but and this is not only a prank because you can get fined for it you can probably even get prison if you're caught because you're setting fire to things in public space and <laughs> yes, you're not supposed to do that it's awesome yes. yes but it's a kind of from my perspective it's kind of a play with values in society this is for real and the, the politicians in, in Jävle they are get really angry and they have to do something about it because it challenges the idea of order actually yeah you shouldn't set fire to things in public places. And people do, or one or two do every year. Up till now, maybe. We'll see. While we're all waiting to see if the goat burns, and some of us will find it quite amusing if it does, it's very illegal. Don't burn the goat. <laughs> Just to put it on record. If you're, if you're tempted, it's not okay to burn the goat. <laughs> I read one of our articles on this recently and there was a, an American tourist a few years ago who set fire to it and he was he was convicted of arson and had his, his lighter confiscated because he wasn't able to handle it properly. <laughs> <laughs>
I, we, you should also say that he uh, he claimed that his his Swedish friends had told him it was a perfectly legal tradition. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't realise it. He wasn't just doing it to set fire to it. He was, was like, oh, I thought I could do this. Of course, if the goat never burned, it wouldn't be as famous. No, of course not. Next question. What's a good gift to bring to a friend who is having you over for Christmas? Well, that's a question I ask myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible. I can't get, give you any advice. But a book is uh, never wrong. Hold a, a clapper. Hoda klappar. Hoda klappar, ja. Hard presents. No, no, no underwear or socks or so. That's, <laughs> that's, I mean, you'd have that's to know boring. them very well to give them underwear. <laughs> I want to know why a birthday present is a present and a Christmas present is a clap. I'd, why do people give each other the Yule clap? <laughs> yes, the word Yule clap, it's uh, this Christmas and uh, w- w- actually a clap. And it goes back to, probably goes back to a tradition in the in the pre-industrial society where kids mostly ran around in the villages and, and clapping on doors and throwing in kind of a piece of wood or a, mm. a little doll or something in order to challenge the, the people who live there and to tease them. And they were supposed to uh, sometimes uh, quickly uh, throw it out again. So it, it's that's the word for that was clap. So jul clap is actually goes back to that tradition. Hmm. Very interesting. You clap on the door, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, we've also been asked about a typical Swedish jul board. Where does this um, sort of buffet tradition come from, and what kind of food can you expect to eat? It goes back to the years after the Second World War in the 50s uh, to uh, one or two restaurants in, in, in Sweden, actually, that created this smorgasbord. We had something like that before that, but th- this is the birth of, of the smorgasbord. And we have this kind of mixture of, of dishes for, of course, pickled herring and, and ham in the Christmas time, sausages, meatballs and whatever. We have them all year round, so to speak, on every had a mid summer food and so we we don't don't change the food but in christmas time we call it smörgåsbord or julbord christmas dishes and do people really eat lutefisk well i do sometimes it's very good and it's a fish that you find nowadays in norway and they are salted and dried uh, yeah. So they are, it's a very, very good way to keep food salted dry. So it was a way to preserve food. Maybe it's a kind of cultural reminiscence of of the, the from when we were Catholics. We were Catholics up until the 16th century, and then you have a fast before Christmas, and you were you were allowed to eat fish. So we have, like in Easter in Sweden, we eat salmon. It's, a kind, it's the same thing. It's a kind of reminiscence, so to speak, of, of the days when we were fasting, uh, 40 days before Easter. Uh, so it's probably a way, a kind of idea, or was an idea, that you are allowed to eat fish. So it connects to that um, sort of broader European Christian tradition of eating fish on a Friday because of Friday. Yeah, is it does. Supposed to be a fast day yes. as well. Yeah, okay. But lutefisk is cured in lye, and lye is. Uh, you, used to make, you use it to make soap. I think it's even been used by murderers to dissolve bodies. Exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. Like it's definitely not something you should be eating. But it's soaked in water before you eat it. Generations of Swedes have survived it. Yes, me for instance. <laughs> yeah, look, Jonas is looking very well <laughs> today. Four dead. <laughs> We've got one question left, and this comes from um, the eight-year-old child of a reader. Is there any connection between red dollar horses and Christmas? No, not, n- no. 
I'm afraid not. No. <laughs> no. And I think you notice, I notice a lot of people in other countries because they buy the red Dala horses from Ikea and they put them up in their houses as Christmassy decorations. Mm-hmm, yeah. okay. So it's become more a Swedish detail in foreign Christmases. Yeah, I have, that's friend, interesting. I have a friend who does that in the UK. Uh, yeah. We went to visit at Christmas last year and they had a big Swedish advent use stocket, so like advent candlesticks and then also red Dala hists. And I didn't, yeah. I didn't, couldn't bring myself to tell them that they weren't a Christmas decoration. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I have uh, a few... American friends and colleagues, uh, and they tell, told me a, a couple of years ago that in the U.S., in the Swedish-American r- regions in the U.S., they had a tradition uh, in Christmas that they were throwing lutfish, throwing lutfisk, actually. And he told me, how old is that? In, in, and I say, we don't do that. We throwing don't throw, it. Throwing it. A At kind what? of, well, contest. I don't know why. <laughs> but we're throwing lutfisk. <laughs> And I, 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 say, I can get well, behind this. That's, that's <laughs> terrible. Have you forgotten this old tradition, they said. And <laughs> uh, so they were uh, kind of... They, they, and we know that this is the case where immigration, emigration context, that people reinvent traditions and make them authentic. And the, 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 the conclusion that they draw from this was that we have, were so modern, that so we had lost in Sweden. So we had lost our idea of where we came from. <laughs> we have lost our tradition. And they were the true tradition bearers. Maybe it was a reaction to trying it for the first time and being so disgusted by it. (laughs) Quickly threw it as far as they could in the opposite direction. Maybe. That's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening and a special thanks to our paying members who make this podcast possible. You'll find links in the show notes to the articles we've discussed today. And a big thanks to our guest, Jonas Engman. Our panellists today were Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again with a new episode of Sweden in Focus a little earlier than usual on Friday, the day before Christmas Eve. Until then, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.